like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. As always, in each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in today's episode, I will be taking a close look at Dick's short story, mini novel. Well, it's 40 pages or so. Novella, maybe? Novelletta? I don't know the word count. And I was designated. But it's a, it's a long one uh, and a significant story. Called, it's called What Dead Men Say. Um, it's, a, it's a novel that I think often gets attached with the later novel, or it's a story that often gets connected to the later novel, Ubik, which was published, I think, in 1969, uh, maybe 68, um, much, much later in his career. But some of the ideas that we see in Ubik are replayed here, uh, although it's a very different story. It, it just kind of plays with the technology, but uh, the overarching story is goes in different ways it's just like the, there's a concept here that's both in ubik and in, in what dead men stay but this story stands alone it's not it's just a rehashing of of that of that tale so it has a lot to do with corporate power it has a lot to do it's really about the afterlife and how we experience it i think it has a lot to do with generational conflict as well and the relationship between the old and, and the young so it's it's an important story though um one of his most important from 1964 i think uh, this, along with the little black box, I think are his most important tales from from '64 short stories, anyways. So, what Dead Men Say was originally published in Worlds of Tomorrow in June of 1964, and you can find it in in Volume Four of Philip K. Dick and Other Classic Stories. Uh, it's I think it's the last one from that volume. If you read these stories chronologically, it's the last one from this volume before you 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 kind of move on to the the final, the final volume of the collected works. So, anyways, uh, let me just jump into the plot summary. The story is in is in five parts, so it's going to take me a little while to go through this this plot play by play. Um, so Johnny Barefoot is struggling with his duty to bring Louis Serapis. Serapis, yeah. I think that's how it's pronounced. Louis Serapis back to life. He's using the half-life technology. And this is the core technology that makes this story work. Um, Serapis will insist that he be kept alive. Johnny, however, wants to move on with his life with the company. So Serapis is, so here's the way it works. Serapis's half-life binds him to the company. Sarah Bell, his wife, suggests that they just put Serapis, by that, by putting Serapis in Half-Life, they may give Johnny more power over the company, which the company that he runs now, or Serapis technically still runs it, even though he's, he's dead. Uh, that's the whole point of Half-Life, is it allows older people to kind of stay somewhat alive into the future in order to keep control over institutions. But Johnny, he kind of is running the day-to-day -day of the company. Then what they do is they ship between Earth and Mars. That's what it is. It's just a basic shipping company. Well, what Half-Life gives you is after you die, you get about a year extended life. A year of extended life, but it allows you to spread that life over many, many years. So if 
you could be woken up for like a day every century. And I mean, I guess if you, people can pay for it that long, if you have enough money to pay for the services that long, because you're kind of in cryo freezing or something, but you, you can be woken up f for a whole, the, the total amount of time you can be alive from that point on is one year, but it's spread out. So this is what gives people authority to continue to control companies, right? So if there's a major crisis, you can wake up the guy, talk about it, talk about him, and then he goes back to being dead. Now, what happens to people in Half-Life is a theme that's explored a little bit here and also explored certainly at, at great length in, in the story Ubik. Johnny thinks about how respected Serapis was and his prominent public role um, as he's preparing to wake up uh, Lewis. This really influenced his decision to work for him, and it also explains how many people arrived at, at the family. Now, um, we, we jump to the mortuary, which is where these people stay in Half-Life. And our, the guy who runs it is Herbert Schonheit. And the place is called the Beloved Brethren Mortuary. And so he's working there and a customer arrives to take his grandmother out of Half-Life. Herb imagines what it'll be like to, or Herb imagines that when he dies, he was going to want to be taken out one day a century. So he can observe all of human history. So he could observe, what, th you know, three 36,000 years or whatever, right? But his job is kind of mundane. He has to deal with customer problems. Like one customer complains that his father's looking a little bit frail. I mean, he's dead after all, but, you know, it's something that he has to deal with. Now, Johnny Barefoot arrives to arrange for the resurrection of Serapis. And the procedure does not work. Barefoot then threatens legal action. Herb is horrified at losing, at the, at the scale of losing such a high-profile case. So apparently the half-life procedure didn't work. Serapis is not brought back to life and it's a big, potentially a big scandal. Meanwhile, Owen Angris, the chief technician at a radio telescope nearby, picks up a signal originating between Earth and Proxima, the closest star, but it's a human voice and it's discussing business. And that's part one. In part two, or chapter two of, of the story, we meet Claude uh, St. Cyr with Gertrude and Phil Harvey, and they're listening to news on the recently discovered radio signal of human voices talking about business light years away. Claude St. Cyr has designs on Harvey's small-time shipping company. He's trying to work for Harvey using the fact that he was cut out of Serapis's will as a justification for basically betraying uh, the Serapis company, right? working for a competitor. St. Cry predicts the decline of Serapis's empire with his, with his death. The half-life attempt was botched, the company, so Serapis is dead, so the company is gonna have to fully go on to the next generation, and it'll be passed on, therefore, because with Serapis fully dead, it'll be passed on to his unstable granddaughter named Kathy Egmont. And so the, the hope of these coming competitors, this group of competitors, is that now Serapis's empire will decline and us smaller companies can get in on it. It's like the feeling when the East India Company was declining in the 1830s. All these little small British shipping firms were thinking, ah, now we can get into the China trade or whatever. So Kathy Ergmont then contacts Johnny Barefoot by phone asking for a ride and a place to stay. Johnny and Sarah discuss the dubious future of the company. St. Cyr is fired and gone. Kathy is, is an unknown. No one really knows what Kathy's going to be like. And Serapis obviously cannot be revived and the half-life attempt, you know, procedure was botched. So the future of the company is unknown. So we basically get this two discussions on the same problem um, by two different groups. One, the opportunists and the people who fled 
the Serapis company and then the, the inheritors of the Serapis company discussing the same problem. The next morning, though, Johnny finds Kathy eating breakfast in the hotel he arranged to have her stay in. They discuss the efforts at reviving Serapis. They go to the mortuary to see Herb, the guy who runs the place. Kathy thinks she can help because she knows the experiences of Half-Life because she was technically dead at one point due to a drug overdose, but she apparently was survived it. So she kind of knows something about being dead. She claims that the voice in space is actually Serapis. It's, it's one light week away at this point. And she thinks it's Serapis, who had died a week earlier. So that's why he's a light week away, I guess, because I guess the souls travel at the speed of light. But he's not the type of man who would settle for Half-Life. And maybe that's why the procedure had failed, that he really wants to live in some way and not, not die. He's after immortality almost. And that, that's chapter two. Okay, chapter three. So St. Cyr has shown a three-day-old telegraph from Louis Serapis by a man named Alfonso Gam. It urges Gam to run for president again. Gam was actually a political stooge for Serapis, and St. Cyr urges him not to run. St. Cyr thinks about his own plan to offer Kathy Ergmont a buyout of the company to Harvey, because Harvey's got this shipping company, so maybe, maybe Kathy will just want to buy out. Maybe she doesn't want to run this company. He wants to take advantage of the weakness of, on Serapis's old company. Although Barefoot is trying to revive its image after the aftermath of the failure of the, of the Serapis half-life procedure, Kathy is publicly discrediting it by these pronouncements that she's been in contact with her grandfather you know, from, from the beyond and that that voice out in space is, is her grandfather. So this is all like bad PR. He listens to the voice, though, and he kind of, tries to listen carefully and he realizes maybe it could be Serapis. It's, it's, you know, you know, it's interesting, like how we, if we hear a voice and we see a face, we're like, oh, of course, that's you. And usually when we hear a voice on the phone, we can recognize it, but sometimes we can't, right? So we pick up the phone and we talk to someone and we think it's, we think it's our friend or we think it's our sister or whatever, but actually it's, it's someone else. And that's kind of a weird experience when we, when we have that. But when we're away from the face, these voices become harder to identify, I guess. Now, Kathy confesses to Johnny Barefoot that she's back on drugs right before their meeting with Harvey and St. Cyr, where they're going to talk about this, this offer to buy out the company. Johnny tells her to accept their offer and just go into recovery and, you know, in the hospital. Just, just check out. You don't want this company, you know, so just, just get away from it. After the meeting, however, Johnny agrees to Harvey's proposition to exchange Serapis's company for most of Ganymede. So that's the deal. A phone call interrupts this discussion, though, and the phone call is from Serapis, who's apparently in this somewhere between Half-Life and space or whatever floating around his soul is, is, is on its journey. It's Serapis who demands that Johnny give Kathy a chance to run the company. So his order is like, keep the company and the family, right? I don't want to see it fizzled away so quickly after I died. Rattle, Johnny still tries to close the deal, though. Johnny threatens to quit if Kathy does not take the deal he's been offered. But Kathy insists that she listen to her grandfather. So she decides to be loyal to her family. Johnny continues to receive messages from Lewis demanding that he allow Kathy to run the company and that Gam run for president again. Johnny begins to despair. Meanwhile, St. Creer finds a cryptic message in the lead article of a newspaper. It's difficult to decipher, but he realizes that the message is actually Serapis telling him that Johnny Barefoot is about to kill himself in a hotel. And that's chapter three.
Okay, then we get to chapter four. So we just heard that Johnny Barefoot is about to kill himself, and then Kathy actually is the one who stops Johnny from jumping from, from the window. She hands him the phone, which has yet another message from Serapis. This one demanding that Johnny support Gam's nomination for president. And then, meanwhile, St. Cyr and Harvey come as well, having been called there by Serapis. So all these people get back together. St. Cyr discusses his plan with Electra Harvey. This is Harvey's ex-wife. He promises her that the deal will help her recover what she lost in the divorce. He is working with Harvey to find Serapis' body, which he hopes will stop his interferences with their plans. Because now at this point, they want to stop Serapis from really pushing Kathy and Johnny to sabotage the deal. Now, Gam and Johnny discuss the possibilities of the political campaign because Johnny's been pushed by Serapis to support Gam's bid for political office. So they talk about that. And Gam hopes that Johnny can articulate his message and, and be kind of the the communication guy, since he's an experienced public relations specialist. St. Cyr tracks down Serapis's body, then shoots it several times. The communications, though, continue, proving that there's no connection between the body and the voice from space. And then we get to the final chapter, chapter five. St. Cyr and Harvey are trying to figure out the origin of Serapis's broadcast on their way to the convention hall, where Gam will likely be nominated. They approach Johnny when they arrive at the hall, threatening him that he, if he won't reveal, re- reveal where Kathy is or the source of the messages. St. Cyr believes that the messages are being created purely by Kathy in order to manipulate this, this deal. Together, they find Kathy at the hospital. Kathy reveals that the half-life failed because she actually consumed Lewis, that the soul of Lewis or whatever exists not in not in half-life, not in the body, not in space really, but that she consumed it. Um, the transmission is actually coming from pre-recorded tapes placed in space years earlier with the hopes of using it to ensure that Gam will be nominated and elected. When St. Cyr mentions committing her into basically a mental institution, Kathy demands a jury trial. Eventually, Gam wins the nomination and he'll, it's likely he'll win the general election um, and become, become leader. The story ends with Johnny, St. Cyr, and Harvey discussing how to destroy the transmissions. But since that will take a month to get out there, they'll need to murder Kathy. They draw matches, and Johnny selects the short one, suggesting that he's the one who's going to have to to pull the trigger on poor Kathy. So that's the story. Um, for Now for my analysis. There's a lot of interesting political and social tension going on in the story, What the Dead Men Say. The primary one is about the tension between the youth and the elders in our institutions and our political systems. Louis Serapis represents the endurance of the old, whether it's through the technology of half-life or the messages coming from space. Serapis is a symbol of the geranitocracy, the perpetual control of our society by the elders. Now, sometimes this is good, I think, like where you have, instead of kind of a rule just by money, you can you, you have elders rule because they have wisdom and knowledge, you know, some, you know, pre-modern societies would do this. And that's probably, you know, hunter-gatherer societies probably had a lot of this as well, in which you kind of took, you know, this is how knowledge gets perpetuated. So you give authority to older people. But that's not quite what I mean. Like the late capitalist geranitocracy is more just that old people dominate our institutions, blocking out young people from positions of upward mobility, right? Like the boomers who won't retire. It's, it's kind of more the problem now. And when 
kind of perpetual when the elders have technologies to allow them to control society perpetually. Especially like half-life, literally made perhaps for centuries to maintain control over institutions. It basically means that young people are never going to be able to step up and mature and, and control the world for their own purposes. It's always going to be the visions of the old. And that is, you know, sometimes there's wisdom in age, I think, especially in societies where time moves more slowly. But in our world, things move so fast and giving too much authority, too much power, economic or political or whatever, institutional power to people in their 60s and 70s is, is not wise because they don't really understand the struggles that young people face. And you see this a lot in like the boomer millennial conflict. I know that a lot of that's mostly just played out on, on the Internet. But I think there's some truth to it, you know, in the pay gap, the the inability of younger people to buy homes in in the West. You know, more and more stories I've been seeing lately about America's reaching a demog demographic crisis because millennials can't have kids. Well, they can't have kids because they don't have money is the solution, is, is the conclusion that a lot of these stories come to. So anyways, what's so horrifying about Half-Life is not what it means for those in it. That's explored in Ubik and this idea that like, Someone in half-life may have these kind of bizarre experiences and they're kind of can't die, right? They're in the space between life and death. This story doesn't talk about that. It doesn't care about that. In fact, the half-life fails. So we're not really actually Serapis isn't in half-life. What it's about are the people who left outside, right? And the, the, the inability of them to make decisions for their own because of the old people. I, I'm just reading, for instance, Willa Cather's Old Pioneers. And in there, like the the man, the, the father of the family, their frontier family in, in Nebraska, the father dies at like 47. So the kids are still fairly young. And he, he says, like, whatever you do, keep the farm and the family. That's his final orders to the to the kids. And that becomes actually a real plot point and a burden for the family as they're trying to move on with their lives. And they have this wealth, they have this land, but, you know, they're frustrated in using it because of this command from the dead. Anyway, so Johnny Barefoot is actually horrified to find that Serapis's will assumes assumes his own will as well. He really can't speak for himself, and he never really can run the company on his own terms, as long as Serapis is in Half-Life. He had hoped his employer's death would allow him to move on with his life, but he has no such luck. The will ensures that he'll be tied to Serapis for the foreseeable future, perhaps forever, right? It's like if you're... You know, if your family has like a home, right? You're, on one level, you kind of hope your, your your parents die because that means you can finally have a home and or, or sell a home and, and, and move on with your life. But no, as long as they're alive, you're stuck living in the basement. Or whatever, stuck with no savings, stuck with student loans, whatever you think inheritance will, will, how it will help you. As long as they're alive, you can't do it. And half-life ensures that the old will never die. That's what's scary about this story for me. There's some relief in the failure of the half-life to work in this case, and it actually liberates the characters for a moment to do what they want with the company and you know pursue forward. And that's where really St. Cyr and Harvey come in because they're representing the insurgent company that's able to oppose this ancient dominant monopoly of, of Serapis. Kathy, at least initially, is also representative of the next generation. She's unable to break freely as easily. She has addictions that are likely rooted in the being raised in this dysfunctional corporate family. And she's unwilling to let go of the company, even though selling out means she can live a more relaxed, luxurious life for the forever. I mean, basically, she could have a planet, Gan well, moon, moon, the moon Ganymede. 
The problem then of half-life is the problem of all life-extending technologies. As promising as they are in extending our precariously short lives, it denies that our social stability is based on the presumption that eventually they all do release their hold on the world and pass on the torch to the next generation. If the dead men never stop talking, the rest of us will never get a voice. Another social tension at work in the story is clearly about media infiltration. What in this kind of it goes back to stories like um, what I forgot the name. Um, the, the, the two that are connected, if there, uh, no, if there was no Benny Simoli is, has this media theme, as does what will we do with Raglan Park and Standby? These are both stories. These are stories about the media, right? So Dick is thinking more about the media at this time and in, in his career. And what Johnny realizes at the end is that Kathy and Gam had won because they had the most saturation of the media. And Serapis' voice from space becomes the symbol of like of the media almost commanding us to do this or that. And, and I think that's another way to read the story. If we don't want to focus too much on the kind of the old dominating through their voice forever, what the dead men will say, what the old people will say, it become, it can be a story about just how the media shapes and directs our politics and our, our economy. Kathy, we find out at the end, is using a powerful transmitter to literally dominate all the media outlets so they can form only to Serapis's, which is really her own message. Quote, she says at the end, what can anyone do? All the means of communication are gone. The media has taken over. They have the radio, TV, phone, wire services, everything that depends on microwave transmissions or open gap electric circuitry. They've captured it all, left nothing for us, the opposition with which to fight back. It is not the situation we are in. Is this not the situation we're in, in which a corporate dominant, cor the corporations dominate the airways? And it's very hard for people to get a voice. Yeah, we can podcast now and things like that. Or we got YouTube, but... Um, you know, there's still a handful of companies control control the media. And right now, you know, if YouTube, if people want to censor YouTube or YouTube wants to demonetize videos, they they can, in a sense, control even alternative media. Even the solutions given in what a dead man say is radical. The source of the message, Kathy, eventually must be killed. Essentially, these two problems are the same. The media centralization and the generatocracy, the rule of the old, limit the potential of others to express themselves and their values. They make both free speech and absurdity. Yes, the old are powerless and the powerless are free to speak, but their voice will not be heard because they're pushed out by those who control the system. And that's the lesson of what the dead men will say. Whether it's the old people or whether it's it's the media or whether it's the big corporations, it doesn't matter. The small business people, the powerless, the disinherited, literally in the case of Johnny Burfa, the disinherited, because of half-life, he, he doesn't even get the chance to take over the company. You know, they're all pushed, they're just pushed out and they're silenced and, and free speech becomes kind of banal and meaningless in that case. So that's it. Um, I think this is really a story about the power of, of media centralization. Um, so with that, I will finish up my, my comments on what the dead men say. We'll have a lot more to say about Half-Life when we get to Ubik, but it, we won't really return to some of these themes. So I think this story stands on its own and it has to be read alone. You can't just be replaced by Ubik because Ubik deals more with the experience in Half-Life. And yeah, some of the, we still have the kind of the corporate shenanigans in the backdrop. We have a capitalist as the man in Half-Life. We have those common themes in Ubik, but that's much more of a psychedelic novel about the experience of kind of being dead and entropy and all that. <clears throat> this is really a novel about the dangers of, of, of rule beyond the dead, 
right? And and really, I think it's a call for allowing multiple voices to speak, and it's a call for allowing allowing young people to to grow up and mature and to take leadership positions. And that means at some point the old have to die. The proper use of half-life is actually discussed at the beginning of the story when the character says, like, I just want to be woken up one day a year or one day a century to see the unfolding of human progress. You know, it's not, it's just to be an observer. It's not to be a controller like Serapis planned to be. So that's it. That's what the dead men say. As always, if I, I probably am wrong about a lot of this or, um, you have your own ideas about the story, please let me know what those are. And you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love very much to hear from you. So that does it for uh, what the dead men will will say. Um, we got a few more stories to look at, um, published in 1964. But um, for now, I'll, I'll go. I'll be back next time with uh, my comments on A Game of Unchance. So as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. If you